We had a few uh, small plastic animal figurines of seeming unknown, unknown origin when I was uh, growing up around our house. And they were joined with another figure that was kind of a, a portly, cartoonish-shaped fella that was holding a staff. And they were like little yay big kind of figurines. And they resided at the bottom of our toy box. And there's where, there's where they oftentimes came out of surviving at least one move from California to Washington and three boys. But where they came from, who knows? Well, it turns out, I found out in recent years where they came from. They were part of a 1970s Arco uh, promotion, part of a Noah's Ark playset that you could purchase when you filled up at the gas station. Right? That such a promotion existed, let alone at a gas station of all places, seems like an artifact from another time, does it not? I mention all this, of course, not for nostalgia's sake, but rather because I imagine that for many of us, the Noah story isn't much more than a child's story. That it's a child's toy, that we recount it through such episodes, but we really don't give it much serious consideration or attention by itself. This is the stuff of nursery murals, right? This is what you paint on the nursery wall. Noah's Ark. It's not for the serious-minded. Well, today's reading invites us here this morning to pause and for each one of us to lean in at this point, to have rapt attention so that we might have the right posture in which we can hear this story anew, get it through all the kind of nursery school, children's telling, flannel board, whatever experience you've had with Noah's Ark, even Arco playset. Uh, And to see the things that might have escaped us previously, allowing ourselves to be surprised along the way, and even confronted in some respect by what we read, both for good, but also for change in our lives. And of course, this all comes with tremendous risk. So I want to start out here with just identifying there's a risk here when you start thinking about Noah's Ark. You start thinking about that story. Darren Aronofsky in his 2014 film Noah, at the time when that was released, uh, of course the movie itself provides an imaginative retelling of the story and it hints at some contemporary applications or at least applications from 2014. While religious groups at the time, particularly conservative Christian groups, pressured Paramount Pictures to include a disclaimer on their marketing materials. It seems that they had forgotten and need to be reminded that filmmakers employ artistic license in their craft. So when you start messing with the story, you start poking at it, you might need a disclaimer to go with that. But as you know, the story that precedes our text this morning, if you have any familiarity with it, you know this. You know it's not a kid's story. And you also know it's not all about rainbows and butterflies. I had fun writing that line. By the time we arrive at Genesis 6, the wheels are coming off the cart. You could say that much. Chapter 6, verse 11 puts it plainly. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And then adds in the second part of chapter 6, verse 12, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. If you know the story of Genesis, you know right from beginning in chapter 4 that things looked rough. When a brother kills a brother, murders them, you know things have gotten rough. So sin is unleashed, it's, it's exploding out into the world, it's finding expression in all kinds of different ways, a myriad of ways in just a few chapters, and that's when we arrive here at chapter 6. It's quite a contrast to what's called good in chapter 1, the creation that's good, but quite consistent of what we find as sin is expressed across the human family. 
identifiers like wicked and evil that we hear in chapter 6, verse 5, or the aforementioned corrupt from chapter 6, verse 12. They were marking the landscape. In a lot of ways, they mark our own landscape today. And that's what's being expressed here by the time we get to the flood account. And what follows is unprecedented devastation. What Ryan Bonfiglio calls a type of undoing of God's initial act of creation in chapter 1, verse 1, through the beginning of chapter 2. According to Bonfiglio, the undoing looks like this. As the flood narrative unfolds, clouds hide the light of the sun, reversing days 1 and 4. Plant and animal life is destroyed, reversing days 5 and 6. The dry ground disappears, reversing day 3. And as the rain descends and seas rise, the distinction between the waters above and the waters beneath is effaced, which is a reversing day two. At the height of the flood, the earth is once again, quote, formless void, as we hear in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. This is the enactment of those sobering words in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7. When God determined to wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. In reading these words here and now hearing them, I am drawn to a question that I read from Esau Macaulay in a totally different context, but a question that I think serves to frame our ponderings here this morning. Namely, as Macaulay puts it, the question at the core of all Christian hope is precisely, what is the nature of the God to whom we swear allegiance? What is the nature of that God? The answer that comes back from the Noah story has more than one facet. There's more than one facet we see here. Yes, we do see one whose justice is swift and terrible who unleashes the floodgates of heaven and withholds any previous protections. The effect is that the once self-exalting creatures are now humbled in an instant. The consequences of their hubris and violence now come into full bloom. Even a limited sensitivity for you and me reading the story, if we are limitedly sensitive, if we had sensitivity to what justice might demand, we too might make some kind of sense to this, though it seems like complete and total and outrageous annihilation that's happening. We might be able to come to some sense of going, okay, I could see if you do this, this, and this, that the outcome might spin out of control and become that. But left to itself, we would have here, if this was the only facet that we saw of who God is, we would have a cosmic disciplinarian is who God would be. Just wait until your, capital F, father learns what you have done. I had fun writing that one too. Right? Just wait. When your father finds out. Yet a second facet shows up, and it shows something more to us. That the cosmic judge of Genesis chapter 6, verse 7 is joined with the grieved parent of Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. There, God expresses regret. Older translations use the word repent here. It's kind of interesting when you think about the only one who's repenting in the story, according to those older translations, 
is God. But God here expresses regret for what was made. It's, God is described as deeply troubled. And that presents a challenging picture for some. In fact, the great reformer John Calvin counts himself amongst the many who are troubled by this. He seems to have sought to smooth this out in his own commentary when he writes, Since we cannot comprehend him as he is, it is necessary that for our sakes he should, in a certain sense, transform himself. This transformation is what we might call anthropomorphism, right? That's what Calvin's getting at here. Putting God into human categories. Calvin and others caution us here to not see God as being too much like ourselves, which is a fair point. Calvin makes a fair point with that. But indeed, God here shows range. So perhaps a better explanation can be found for the passion that we see on display here. The 20th century German pastor and professor Helmut Thielich may offer such. And you're like, what, Thielich? What? Helmut Thielich, what? How'd that get into the sermon? 20th century pastors? It's great stuff. I'll tell you what, if you can look up Thielich, good, good stuff. But he observes here, he says, can we really dare to go on asserting that this is the sign of a human, all-too-human God? Is not this rather the other side of the fact that God is a royal giver, that now, and now he must discover in pain and sadness how everything we have is perverted and spoiled in our hands? How our power over creation leads to delusions of grandeur? How the joy of sex becomes brutish rut? How our reason becomes a matricious whore? And how we use our knowledge of the elements and energies of creation to shatter the same creation? In other words, God actually cares. God actually cares. And it shows here in Genesis. That instead of being a side project full of mere playthings, God has created this entire enterprise that we call creation for the purpose of relationship. That God has a design here. That we might enjoy God forever, as we say. God's purposes are on display here. And this is the case before the flood when human hearts are described in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 as being inclined toward evil and even after the flood in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21 where human hearts are still said to be inclined towards evil. That God's design and purpose still remains the same. That God has a plan and a purpose for this creation. So because of this, God takes certain action, and in so doing presents yet another facet, another facet of who God is. God does not leave the world in formless void. Think about the world covered with water, destroyed, just an ark remaining. But rather we read in chapter 8, verse 1, that God sent a wind over the earth. You're supposed to hear in that the language of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Because that's where the Spirit was hovering over the waters. And Spirit and wind in Hebrew share the same word. Creation here is being rebooted. He's starting up. Control-Alt-Delete. Boom. Just hit it. If you're of a certain age, Control-Open-Apple-Reset. This will not be, and this will not mark, total annihilation as it initially looked to be headed. It won't be because God won't let it be. It's not God's design. God is, and God will be merciful. And as a direct outgrowth of who God is, we see that in our reading today, 
that this creation reboot comes with the introduction of a divine self-limitation. The project will begin again, hence the protective shelter of Ark for creatures of all kind, but it won't only begin again, but rather start afresh with a new guarantee. It comes with a covenant. Though unlike other covenants of the time, when you think of ancient covenants of which two or more parties involved agreed to a particular obligations, and they own the related consequences that come when you don't fulfill those obligations, this one's one-sided. This is a one-sided covenant. We see this expressed in verse 11 of our text. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. God's justice here is checked by God's own mercy. Or perhaps one informs the other that both work towards a beautiful plan. Either way, it's quite extraordinary. And it's totally unexpected. Think about human versions of justice. Think about what we come up with, what we might call justice. A lesser human expression we see unfolding in the world today, right? In war zones and displaced peoples. In arms races and posturing. You hit me, I kill you. That's justice. And that's what's going on today, and it happens all the time around us, that we call that getting justice. But justice infused with mercy, that's something else. That's something totally foreign, something totally different. John Goldingay accentuates the differences here when he writes, the human instinct to seek justice might imperil the world, but the divine commitment to justice will not do so. Human mercy cannot be presupposed. Divine mercy can be. It can be. Some commentators point out that the covenant sign itself, the rainbow that we see in verse 13, that it accentuates the differences all the more. More than just a colorful, light, refracting spectacle that we find to be so visibly appealing, right? And even more so when it's a double rainbow. Rest in peace, Paul Vasquez, a.k.a. Yosemite Bear. Some of you have seen that video on YouTube. 51 million people have seen that video on YouTube of the double rainbow. If you have not, go home, get on YouTube, type in double rainbow. You're welcome. But rather, the bow is to be understood as a weapon, like a bow and arrow, that type of bow. It's the same word. That instrument of hostility here is now at rest. That, that's what God sees. The bow is at rest, and the business end is facing away from creation. God could pick it up, but God won't. God won't pick it up. That's what God is promising here that he won't pick the bow up again, that he won't annihilate creation in this way. I mentioned the film earlier, but when the 2014 Noah film was released in North America, it was accompanied by a commissioned exhibition of original artwork that was inspired by the biblical story. There was lots of different looks and interpretations that came with that exhibition. And in, connection, or in conjunction with the show, Darren Aronofsky observed, the Noah story belongs to all of us, every religion, every culture, every citizen on planet Earth. And Aronofsky isn't wrong in saying that. Take a look at verses 9 and 10. I, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on Earth. What God promises to do will be for all creation. Just how wide is the audience that's in view? 
right? Hear it again, verse 16. All living creatures of every kind on the earth. All. And if for a moment we might imagine that this kind of commitment is out of step, we think this is out of step with what God has revealed in the pages to come, let me remind us of another verse 16, right? Another verse 16. Perhaps you've heard of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Is it out of character for God to establish a covenant for all people? To extend it to all the world, to all the nations? That's one-sided. That all the heavy lifting is held by God's self. Sounds a bit like the new covenant. What's being accomplished in Jesus Christ. The swaths to whom God's grace is given is often far wider and more expansive than I name or even what I can possibly imagine. So based on this covenant, I wonder what and who does God not care about? Right? That's the first covenant that's being extended out with God's own word. Who does God not care about? It certainly invites a different way of thinking about myself and my neighbor the wilds that surround and the animals I keep. Even my dog Otis, the way I treat Otis, has to be different if God extends the covenant to all of creation. Let that kick around in your own heart and mind as you think about what you do with this text. So in closing here, I want you to imagine yourself in a swamp. All right? Based on the rainfall in my backyard, it doesn't take much imagination for me. But imagine you're in a swamp and you're sitting on a lily pad and you're playing a banjo. That was a Kermit the Frog reference. Some of you got that. If you remember the 1979 film, The Muppet uh, Movie, then you know the scene and you probably know what I'm going to say next. I want you to make a rainbow connection. I want you to make a rainbow connection. That when you see the rainbow, whether you see it in the sky or you see it in an article of clothing, or even on a flag, when you see the rainbow, or even when you don't see it, to be reminded of God's promise, of God's mercy, of God's grace for you, and that God's love extends to all of creation, all of creation. And perhaps such great love not only invites you and me to believe something more, but actually compels us to be something more in the way that we treat one another, friends and neighbors, how we care for the environment, how we care for all living things, that we ourselves might even put the bow down and not pick it up, that we might pray and worship and know God for who God is and how God has revealed God's self. There's a story of a guy named George who was engaged now, if the story ended there, it would be like, okay, that's kind, of, that's kind of a pleasant, happy story. But George started going blind, and there was nothing the doctors and medical science could do to help him at the time. They couldn't reverse his condition. And so his fiancée informed him that going through life with a blind man would be too much for her. She broke off the engagement. George never married after that point. Well, many years later, and perhaps recalling his own heartbreak from years earlier, the evening before his sister's own wedding, in which George received quite a bit of his caregiving, came from his sister, but she was getting married, and I'm sure he had all kinds of thoughts in his heart and mind about what the future would look like for him, and also thinking about his own past. 
George wrote a song. He wrote a song on that evening. According to his own story, the song came quickly. The words came quickly. It took him five minutes to write the words. No edits. Just came right out. It's the only time in all the songwriting he ever did that that happened. Something came out so fast and was able to be produced with no edits. And so, friends, the lights of life for each one of us may be many, and the challenges possibly more. We might find ourselves amidst troubles like George himself that press in on us from all sides, that push us to the limits, that cloud our vision, that crowd our mind, and even cramp our style, right? Life might hit us in certain ways, and they may not be soft punches. And in the process, we can lose sight of the signs of God's love. We can miss seeing the rainbow. And the good news is that the promises are not anchored in our limited vision, but rather in what God sees and who God remembers. And so may God give us renewed vision today to see what is promised, that in Jesus Christ we too might say, as George Matheson wrote so many years ago in that third verse of, O love that will not let me go, when he wrote, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. May it be for each one of us this day and every day forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love that abounds and abides with us in each and every day. Though the clouds might be thick and heavy, and may our vision have difficulty seeing through them, Lord, help us not to be mired down and stuck, but rather might we see the glories of you at work in this world by the power of your Spirit, and remembering that great promise that's for us, but also for all of us. Help us not to forget that. Help us not to limit what you're up to but rather to participate in the glory of the ministry of Jesus Christ in this community and throughout the entire world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.